Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Well, um, after your, I thought, very nice uh, small tribute to Joe Cox last week, we thought that uh, we'd come and do an early pre-EU referendum podcast because obviously there's no point us sounding off and putting it out on Thursday when people will be still be voting and it's immediately outdated. Mm-hmm. So a special early episode of the New Statesman podcast this week. Um, let's talk about um, Joe Cox's his death. Obviously, there are things that legally we can't really talk about, but just a bit about the the effect that it had on on Westminster it was a it felt a very uh, I, I actually I was surprised by how genuinely upsetting I found it I don't know if you felt the same I mean I think I wasn't surprised how upset I was in a way in the although um I didn't know her very well um that kind of development focused right of the labor party center left kind of kind of patch is a, a bit of the Labour Party I, I know very well. I've written a lot about the refugee crisis. So the the fact that it appears to have partly been motivated by her politics, I, I think made it more visceral because it felt more like, well, that could have been some of the MPs that I know very well. Um, you know, MPs who, you know, I've, I, I've, I see socially, MPs who've been to my wedding or whatever. And because my partner works in politics and you kind of take for granted in mainland Britain, then she has an 100% chance of mm. coming home at the end of the day. Uh, I know it's incredibly self-centered to see it through that prism, but I think that was kind of the initial reaction I think for me it was, it was a really strange day anyway because the news broke initially that she was injured, uh, you know, at about one forty-five, two p.m., uh, and then the England match almost immediately started. And so on Twitter, particularly, it was a very strange mixture of people who hadn't quite got the news yet, or people who were tweeting about the football anyway, versus people who were sort of seeing this kind of unfolding story. And then I was walking by chance through the city, and it was that horrible pre-thunderstorm atmosphere you know the very muggy but very oppressive and close and then there was a group of very loud England fans you know shouting and and doing that slightly obnoxious 
victory thing. Um, and it just, and I just, I thought, actually, I don't want to get on the tube. You know, it was that mm. sort of, it, it reminded me a bit after like, after 7-7, seven, seven, where you just, your your own city kind of felt a bit strange to you again. Um, in that sense that, like you say, I just felt, I felt less safe. And I know, again, it's a very self-indulgent reaction. But I imagine that's why it affected so many people, because it felt, we didn't think we were that kind of country. Yeah, I think that's the that's the, the fundamental thing. I think the decision to suspend campaigning until Sunday was the right one. I think it was would have been impossible to to carry on and make those arguments, you know, while that period of kind of mourning was observed. It would have felt very tasteless indeed. And it, I have, to, I would love to say that it looks like this week has started with um, a kind of more sober, <laughs> factor-based approach to campaign. But I have to say that doesn't seem to necessarily have happened. So we've already had uh, Penny Morden, who's one of who's a, an armed forces minister, who's on the Leave side, claiming that we don't have a veto against Turkey joining in the EU. Lots of people have told her that we do, and she's left that tweet up. Douglas Carswell, UKIP's only MP, saying that Viktor Orban, as a representative of Jobbik, the far-right party Jobbik, wants us to stay in the EU. Of course, he doesn't. He's not a, a member of Jobbik, and in fact, Jobbik are against. He wants us to are, are quite Brexity. They're quite eurosceptic. So, um, so there's just been you know two flagrant falsehoods already peddled. I thought, and I have to say that the other thing that, that really struck me about uh, my own kind of reaction to, to Joe Cox's death is that. I couldn't believe watching Cameron on Question Time with someone saying you're Neville Chamberlain, you're a bit shouting at him. I just thought I know that we. I'm, I'm, I think it's great that we live in a country where we don't, you know, tug our forelocks to politicians. But I think that's that kind of using politicians as your sort of punching bags verbally is. I, I find that a really. I don't know. I just find that really disrespectful actually to all the people who elected them. But I also think then there's kind of a. Once again, it's this language of traitors of the enemy within that is discomforting, uh, to say the least. On the other hand, I'm always reluctant. Yeah, kind of, we shouldn't forget that the Nye Bevan described the Conservatives are lower than vermin. Winston Churchill warned that Attlee winning would lead to a Gestapo being formed in Britain. This was someone who he'd fought a war with. Godwin's uh, law was in operation yeah, even. So, uh, yeah, even I mean, in some ways, I think that what's happened is that the wonderful thing about the internet is then we are we have got a much closer connection with our readers and listeners than any set of NS writers have ever had in the magazine's history, which is great 90% of the time, but obviously the other 10% of people are people who don't like black left-wingers or women left-wingers, etc., etc. But I think partly what's happened is that those people can be measured. Yeah, we can see them. Um, but uh, Which is ironic, given that the cry is often so much about not being heard. And I think a lot of people's sense of, of anger springs from the idea that no one's listening to them. And I don't actually necessarily think that that's an entirely wrong thing to say, because I think, for example, if you are somebody who cares, you know, for immigration is the biggest is, in, issue in your life. It's something that you absolutely care the most about. Um, you know, if you if you live somewhere with very high rates of immigration that has driven down wages or, you know, there is only seasonal work and it's being taken by other people... Uh, I kind of think that, that there, there isn't really an outlet for you in, in mainstream politics. I think that the Conservatives really are mostly responsible for, for failing those people by playing, an, you know, the, the camera, I'm talking about the Cameron strain of Conservatism, very happy to talk a big tough game that was then not at all carried through. So no wonder people feel slightly betrayed on that. Yeah, we, we, did, we also did see that uh, for, from Labour 
last week with the Yvette Cooper's slightly mystifying intervention and this idea, oh, we can we can look again at free movement. We can look again at free movement. It's just that the other 27 countries in Europe will go, good, thanks for looking, but yeah. no, nothing happening. The thing is, there, there is... So there isn't quite nothing you could offer Poland or Lithuania that they would be willing to go to their own voters and say, by the way, we've made it harder for you to travel within the EU. However, there's nothing you could give the 2004 accession countries to make that worthwhile than would be a price that Germany, France would be would be willing to pay. And to be honest, actually, I don't think it would be a price that uh, British voters would actually be willing to pay. I think people are right to feel that politicians have been misleading them about immigration. If, if, you know, if you say, oh, we'll vote to stay and then we'll look again at free movement, that's just a lie. It's not a lie which directly spreads division and fear of the other, like the 75 million Turks who are going to all get passports and rock up tomorrow and steal my job as special correspondent. Uh, but, um, but it's a lie nonetheless. And people do know that they are kind of being sold a pop and have been sold a false prospectus uh, on, on our ability to control our borders for some time. Okay, so let's let's zoom out slightly. What do you think will be the lasting when the, this kind of period gets written up in history books? What would you think will be the defining thing that comes out of it? Have we actually learned anything during this this referendum campaign that we didn't sort of know already? The thing that historians are perhaps disproportionately obsessed with is beginnings and endings. When do you break up the the 18th century. Yeah, when 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 no, do periods the long 18th century? Yeah, yeah. Just when just when when do periods be, yeah. begin and end? Because and the interesting thing is also that is partly about apportioning blame. So this kind of divide that we've seen in the referendum, what Blair described as between open versus closed. You know, if depending on where you start, that depends on who you want to blame. You can start in 2004 with the accession of uh, the of New Europe, the failure to spend adequate money in Boston or Peterborough, etc. The lack of transitional controls yeah. on people coming in from the new countries. And then, yeah. of course, it's kind of Blair on Brown, Blair and Brown's fault. And I mean, obviously, it's broader than that. But yeah, you or you can go still further back to the fall of, uh, of, of, of the Soviet Union and its satellite states and the failure to build adequate provisions. But w- wherever you start from at this point, I think we will look back, I think, at 2016 at a moment at which the hourglass economy, resentment towards migrants as the cause, in heavy inverted commas, uh, of that injustice came to a head in a particularly nasty way uh, both in terms of the vocabulary used and uh, some of the events uh, outside of that. So when you talk about the hourglass economy, that's the idea that jobs are now bunched. Uh, you know, there's there's a real there's a bunching at the bottom, right, and yeah. then at the top, and then actually the the, the the sort of solid middle class jobs that there once were that you just you know can have a support a nice lifestyle on are kind of going away. Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah, yeah. Basically, the idea is that you have lots of very wealthy jobs at, at the top and uh, very few. Uh, kind of mid-ranking jobs, which you kind of see in, um, yeah. So let's take, say, the the average office, which even ten years ago someone might have had perhaps ten secretaries, a couple of clerks. Now they may have one person as their legal desk uh, and a computer, a computer, yeah. and then a cleaner. Uh, yeah, kind of, and yeah, kind of. This it's the problem of most startups in that they have lots of very well-paid tech people, and then. 
people doing but also just fewer people generally there's a bit in andrew keen's the internet is not the answer he talks about the fact that you know kodak had employed you know hundreds of people and Mm. one of the big reasons that it went bust is the rise of things like instagram the photo sharing app which i think at the time that it was bought out for whatever billion dollars had about 12 employees you know it's just the the kind of the amount of value that you can extract from companies with far fewer employees is is just extraordinary i know you spent this weekend in hull the glorious Sun lit up. Actually, I bet the weather was nicer in Hull than it was here. Yeah, it was actually very good. Um, what was the mood like on the on the Hullian doorstep? It was uh, really interesting. So I was driven partly by uh, Andy Burnham's sort of alliterative thing about Hampstead and Hull. I mean, so, so this is we speak too much to Hampstead and not, not enough, not to, enough Hull. to Hull. In was the he talking specifically camp- about Labour there, or was he talking about the general referendum? Campaign? I think he was talking specifically about Labour mm. and its approach to the referendum. I mean, so a couple of hostages to fortune. I know there have been a lot of, you know, the, the bookies are saying turnout of 80%. The Electoral Commission is comparing that. Yeah, I don't I don't buy that. The, the thing I found interesting is that um, I found it very hard not to compare it to when I was up in Glasgow immediately before mm. the independent referendum, partly because in many ways Hull looks visually a lot like Glasgow or Bristol or Oxford, you have kind of an imperial city centre, sandstone, mo- uh, monuments to the empire, uh, outer ring of uh, private housing built in the Baldwin government, and then uh, dotted around all of that is council housing built after the Blitz by those post-war governments. The, the di- big difference is Hull, unlike Bristol or Glasgow or Oxford or Cambridge, hasn't had its... kind. Well, I guess Oxford Cambridge were never really dependent on the imperial economy, but hasn't had its second act economically, as it were. It hasn't had the moment where the jobs from uh, the old the old world have vanished and they've been replaced by equally dignified work uh, for, for most people. There's still actually a lot of manufacturing in Hull, but it doesn't employ very many people because of technological change. And the interesting thing is, it, it is, as all the polls say, a mu- much more Eurosceptic than, uh, than than most of the places I've visited during the referendum campaign. But I think, another hostage to fortune, I think this idea that the referendum is going to reconfigure politics to UKIP's benefit in the event of a Remain vote, based on Hull, I would have liked to have time to go to Sunderland as well, uh, but... But I also don't yeah, know whether or not it's going to reconfigure politics to UKIP's benefit, UKIP's benefit rather than a more general Eurosceptic or nationalist feeling if if we vote out. Because I wonder, in the same problem as, you know, the Conservatives got crushed by the coalition, you know, if once you get what you want, you can't be a, in the, in the you know, you can't be in a, a peddling a kind of grievance politics. It's that point. It's kind of, like, well, what, you know, where's all this stuff you promised us? Oh, no, so I think, I think Remain is actually, uh, sorry, Leave is actually the best scenario for for UKIP. Because vote leave are running on an entirely fictitious uh, manifesto. If you compare it to Scotland's white paper, yes, some of the sums in that you can say were a bit optimistic. But ultimately, there was a plan there, which if you were a civil servant in the Scottish government, you could have come in the next day and gone, right, okay. And you could have implemented something like that, at least something which most reasonable people would look around and go, okay, you've tried. We didn't get everything in it, but Mm. you've tried. Whereas... Vote Leave are basically offering a version of exit from the EU that is not on the table and will never be on the table. Whatever happens, and my guess is, to be honest, what will happen is we will end up in some kind of EEA Norway-style arrangement uh, where the City of London keeps its financial passports, etc., etc. We accept a far smaller level of opt-outs 
and are much more um, of a supplicant towards the European Union. And we no longer get a veto on and Turkey no, joining yeah. the EU, And we ironically. no longer get a veto on Turkey joining Despite the having, EU. Despite probably having free movement. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we would... And I think at that point, I think there's an idea at the top of Vote Leave and among a lot of Conservative Brexit-backing MPs that they can run a campaign on the dangers of the Turks, on the awfulness of immigration, and then they can turn around and go, surprise, we're going to keep free movement, we're just going to regulate workplace rights less. And then they can do this and there won't be political repercussions for that action. I think UKIP will do very well in that scenario. Because it would be seen to be the Conservative government that's failing on all the promises. Yeah. And UKIP will say, well, we had the one true flame, we've been betrayed. And as we all know, nothing gets people going like a civil war. Yeah. Whereas yeah, I think I see that. in a Remain vote, sooner rather than later, Cameron will be replaced by a Brexiter. And my instinct is what will happen is it will be quite good news for the right... Uh, but I think then they will actually do a better job of eating UKIP under a pro-Brexit prime minister. Uh, One of the things I thought was interesting about the reaction to, uh, to on Thursday afternoon after the killing of, of Joe Cox was that Theresa May came out of the Home Office to make a very short statement, which I thought she did well. And actually, I thought Cameron did his statement well. Jeremy Corbyn's written statement was better than his his clip for, for the TV cameras. I thought it was it was an, it was a nice tribute. But it it did make me feel, and I don't know how many other people felt, that, that that's the kind of time when you want a grown-up. And actually, I think we can. I think when you think about Boris Johnson, I just don't know how well he would do those moments. And I wonder whether or not at some point, when as, as the prospect of Prime Minister Boris Johnson hoves closer, people sort of think it's all very well... But you know, will he do the state? You know, will he do the state funeral? Will he do the, you know, like um, Tony Blair's post Princess Diana? You know, can he do the set pieces that demand gravitas? I think he can, partly because I mean, so I mean, I have a problem, and I think I've probably said this before, but I'm going to bore our listeners with it again. In that, I find it so hard to see the appeal of Boris, and I am always really reluctant to say, "Oh yeah, this is the moment when he's going to come unstuck," because I've just never got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to plead ignorance on that one. But this is this is someone who is incredibly cunning, who pra- who works awfully hard to look like a shambling, improvisational politician. I think if he needs to, and I mean, you remember in 2008 when he kind of briefly rebranded himself as a serious politician to take on Ken Livingstone, mm. and they had actually a, a range of fairly terrible policies in terms of their consequences for uh, London and clean air. But in terms of the demographics he needed to win over to win that mayoral election he was a ruthless operator in the 2008 election i think he'll probably find a way to do that again i think he will yeah i think his capacity for regeneration uh has surprised people before it certainly surprised me i think there's an element uh we know this exists within political journalism of people who are nice about power, whether that's the Labour leadership or the Conservative leadership, whether they're in or out of opposition, in order to get stories and exclusives Mm -hmm. from them. I think Boris will so much be the coming force that he will get soft-soaped by Mm. most of the right-wing press, which will make it harder for those uh, flaws to become apparent. Uh, So yeah, I think, but I think you're right, and there is potentially a problem for him that he can't well, you're right. He would yeah. have to tack. He would have to tack back to serious again. Yeah. You know, the, it, during this referendum campaign, he's been sort of brandishing pasties and saying things that are slightly, you know, uh, outrageous. And I think he's probably would then have to get veer back towards the the sober again, mm. as it were. I think also that the advantage he has, perhaps, you know, we we don't know how long if we do stay in Touchwood, 
than Cameron last yeah we probably will have another recession we've had a referendum campaign which was pretty grim even before uh (laughs) sorry it's just everything's so miserable i was listening to a podcast about antimicrobial resistance on the way in and at the end they ask all the scientists that you know are you worried about this and they'll go i'm terrified yeah i'm really terrified but (laughs) the world seems very very scary right there may be an element than boris is like ha 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 only me kind of thing might actually cheer up yeah. Uh, people. Well, there we go. Maybe if we win the Euros and we do really well at the Olympics, we'll get a bit of, um, of, of optimism back. Well, that's it for us for now. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's Pop Culture Podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So Jeremy Corbyn made his one and only major TV appearance of the EU referendum campaign yesterday. And while it helped confirm that he's not a secret Brexiter, as some have wrongly claimed, it did show that he's the most reluctant of Remainers. Um, He said he didn't love the, the European Union... He said at one point there would be implications from Remain, there would be massive implications from Leave. Uh, he often sounded like a rather dispassionate teacher um, as opposed to a campaigning leader a few days before uh, the, one of the biggest votes in the UK's history. Yeah. Um, in terms of the balancing act within his own party, um, has he done enough to escape uh finger-pointing and kvetching uh, should uh, Britain leave the EU on Thursday? I don't think he's done enough to escape it. I think he's done enough to limit it. Um, He has been, most of the time, fairly unambiguous in putting the case for Remain. He is clearly passionate about workers' rights and about what he calls uh, building a Europe of solidarity uh, in alliance with other left-wing leaders. Um, but he will be charged with a lack of enthusiasm. That's that's fairly clear. And also, I think, for downplaying the economic warnings from Remain. So yesterday, for instance, he said that uh, he refused to endorse George Osborne's warning that Brexit would hit the poorest hardest. Uh, whereas Ed Miliband, by contrast, the SNP, they have been warning uh, their voters that uh, a Tory Brexit would mean uh, spending cuts and, and, and tax rises for them. And Remain obviously consider that a, a much more um, effective approach. Um, if uh, we do leave, what is, well, if we stay, uh, how long can Cameron stick around in that situation? I think he'll find it hard to last much beyond 2018 at best. He's already said that he's not going to fight another election. We know from history. Uh, contrast Tony Blair and, and Harold Wilson that when you say you're going to resign your authority erodes at an accelerated rate uh, the Tories will get increasingly restless some will want an early election to take advantage of Labour's weakness and also once uh, once the referendum's over there's, there's no great project which, which David Cameron has lined up 
um, to justify him him staying for, for until 2019. Say um, he has what he calls his his one nation agenda, but um, in the view of many, particularly in the, in the Leave camp, the Queen's speech was really pretty thin gruel. Right. Um, and if we leave, um, how you know will his feet not touch the ground? Uh, how long can he last in that scenario? I think he'd be gone by the end of the year at the latest. I don't think he'd go immediately. I think he would feel it was his duty to remain for the sake of stability. And I think the Leavers would actually quite happily have some time to plan their approach. But I don't think Tory MPs would allow someone who'd campaigned for Remain, especially as vigorously as as David Cameron has, to then lead the process of negotiating Britain's withdrawal. I just don't think that's an option. And... um... On the subject of other people's political futures after rain, Michael Gover said he might resign if Britain votes to stay. So a nice two-for-one bonus there for many of our listeners. Um, what, yeah, what, what, what are you hearing about the shape of Cameron's post-Remain cabinet? Mm, so there's not likely to be a reshuffle until the autumn because David Cameron wants to give Tory MPs an incentive to behave themselves over the summer. Um, my guess is that it will be somewhere in between... Um, it won't be a, it won't be a, a full purge, uh, but it won't be entirely conciliatory. He clearly he will uh, take the chance to get rid of some of the Brexiters, particularly those who've overreached themselves during the campaign. He will reward those who have been uh, in Downing Street's eyes well behaved, such as Chris Grayling, uh, Theresa Villiers, um, Andrea Ledser, and James Wharton. The big question, of course, is is whether he um, retains Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, and if so, at what level? Other than Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, who else is on the naughty step as far as Downing Street is concerned from the Brexit side? Mm, Penny Mordaunt, who obviously uh, denied that the UK had a veto over Turkey. Um, Priti Patel has launched some remarkably fierce attacks on, on David Cameron. But from a Leave perspective, the, the man who's on the, on the naughty step is, is George Osborne. And he, of course, has been for some time for many Tories. So perhaps the biggest decision that Cameron has to take is whether to keep Osborne at, at the Treasury or perhaps to replace him with uh, Theresa May, a, a reluctant Remainer, someone who's taken a deliberately consensual approach. And on, Remain, on the Remain side, there's some who think it would be in Osborne's interest to actually move away from the Treasury to the Foreign Office, because although he'll be away from Westminster, he won't be able to immerse himself in the game playing that he so loves. It will free him from the desire to bear responsibility for austerity, which, as we've seen in, in, in just a year, has dramatically eroded his leadership hopes. Right. And we'll be back to discuss the fallout from the vote, whatever it happens, in a Friday in a special edition. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now it's time for You Ask Us. Uh, we've decided to be very brave and tackle the question we've got from a lot of people this week, um, even though uh, the potential for egg on our faces is large. 
which is what do we think will happen on Thursday? Helen, you first. Well, I have very sensibly not said anything or made any kind of prediction because I just think the the rewards for getting it right are nothing compared to the egg. And I'm, I'm very sensitive about the egg. But I have to say secretly, I confess that all the way through, I have thought it would be Remain, simply because I think that the economic message is, is one that is really powerful. If you think about the fact that David Cameron, although people might now think he's a bit boring and dull and the lobby consensus is, you know, he's a fading star, he is still a prime minister who won an overall majority that no one expected him to win only 12 months ago. So clearly people don't hate him that much. And my feeling was that, you know, a lot of people will take the opportunity in the polls, I think as Peter Kellner wrote for us, to, you know, a couple of weeks out, it's basically, do you want to kick the government? And people go, yes, I want to kick the government. But then as things get closer to, to polling day, people begin to really think about their mortgage, their pension. You know, is, is the situation currently so intolerable that they're willing to take a risk on the outcome? Uh, and, you know, I felt like at the last election, Labour's sort of basic premise was, you know, the austerity has been really horrible. You're all suffering time to change the government and vote for Labour. And the, the sense that I found places that I went in the country that were Tory Labour marginals was that people said, well, the recession has been bad, but actually we're on the way back up. No, things aren't bad enough for us to want to gamble on, on changing stuff. And I sort of feel that's still the same now. But you've been very Brexity all year. Yeah. So I've been um, very pessimistic about the referendum since January, I've thought that we were on a trajectory to leave the European Union. Um, so, but I'm actually going to. Um, You're going to recant. I'm recanting. Yeah, I've done a. I've actually done a U-turn uh, because over the last couple of weeks, I've been out and about an awful lot around very different bits of the country, including places where, according to the polls, we expect remain to do fairly badly. And from lots of people, you know, different ages, different groups, but all people you'd expect to trend towards Brexit. Yeah, all of the stuff about immigration, all of those worries. But then they go, but I don't really think that would change in Brexit. And then you hear again, I'm worried about my house price. And I think we forget, particularly in London, where getting on the housing market is such a distant dream for so many people. We forget that, you know, 40% of the country is still an owner-occupier with a mortgage, 20% still ha- is an owner-occupier. And actually, if you want to sell your house, even if you aren't worried about negative equity, you're still not that wild about the price going down. And about interest rates going no, up as well. Rate, yeah. So, I mean, Mark Carney didn't make his Mansion House speech in the end, but there have been previous worries about inflation and then which would then need to be controlled by a rise in interest rates. And, you know, for every half point that that base rate goes up, a lot of people's mortgages slip away. I think you wrote about buy-to-letters and the yeah. fact that that might be drastically undercounted because, you know, that the idea is that people have one buy-to-let mortgage. Well, actually, some people have, have, have several with different... with several banks. And the estimate is a third... I know many a third of, of buy to let mortgage holders would wouldn't be, be able to. Water, and which yeah. I know a lot of our listeners will go, oh, that's brilliant. I would be able to buy a flat. I'm afraid that you would not because one, the banks would suddenly go, whoa, I'm not, that was awful. I'm not lending to anyone else. The second is, is a lot of people would be in negative equity. So they wouldn't be able to sell their houses because they would uh, not uh, pay off the mortgage. What they would have to do is they would hike rents or some of them would be repossessed. <laughs> which again would then likely be bought at a knockdown price by more cash buyers. So I'm afraid that yeah. it, would, it, would, it would not solve the, problem, the housing problem for people who can't get on the ladder. But that, so that's my prediction. And I, I'm very willing to be proved wrong because it, it, it has been... Vote Leave have fought an incredibly dirty but 
effective campaign. They've, their messages have been very disciplined. Things that have been cut through. You know, I had a, a letter that came into the magazine this week that said, you know, we've got to take control. Mm. And I thought, oh, hello, that's, uh, you know, that is that line directly from their, their branding. So, you know, they have had cut through with stuff and they have been very, I don't like the way they've gone about it, but they have been very effective and very focused. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not, I'm not eating my hat stage if, if, if it turns out we do vote to leave. I mean, if we vote to leave, I, I won't. I will find it very hard to understand why people felt that was the right decision, but I will understand the process and the campaign and why all of that happened. I will uh, also groan horribly because our lives are going to be very busy and full of even more Tory infighting, uh, something which I'm not looking forward to covering in more detail over the summer. Yeah, and then the recession and, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, um, but... I do sort of feel like things are moving in a positive direction for Remain. I did feel out and about over the last couple of weeks. I have started to feel a mood in the air in the same way that when I was in the Vale of Glamorgan or whatever, you could feel a mood in the air of people kind of going, oh, we know Ed Miliband's had a hard time from the press, so we'll take a look for him ourselves. But actually, we've decided he's not up to it. And I feel there's an element of people going, we are angry about immigration, we don't like any of this, but actually we are worried about the economic hit. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's going to be Remain. And that means that probably Daniel Hannan, Chris Grayling, Ian Duncan-Smith, Nigel Farage, Douglas Carswell will all be getting fewer TV bookings from now on, which is obviously something that I personally feel very sad about. We'll find a way to struggle through, I'm sure. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.